Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye wastes away from grief, my soul and body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my misery and my bones waste away. I'm the scorn of all my adversaries, a horror to my neighbors, an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've passed out of mind like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror all around, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and persecutors. Let your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. We speak of the seven last words of Jesus, but no one of the four gospel writers has all seven. In fact, you have to read them all, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to get seven last words from the cross. Luke tells his story of the death and resurrection of Jesus and has the last sentence he knows about being a direct quote from Psalm 31. Luke believes that as Jesus' life was wasting away on that cross, Psalm 31 was coursing through his mind, and that the last thing he said was, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Let's take a look at this psalm. I've underlined four things. The first thing is a very powerful statement with which today's lection began. Be gracious to me, O Lord. I need grace. I need unmerited, unmerited love. Amazing grace, please, grace for me. This past week has just been terrible for me in many ways. So many of the meetings that I have to go to are set by people who are no longer pastoring churches. And they forget that this is Palm Sunday, that we have Monday, Thursday, we have Good Friday, we have Easter Sunday, that we are going day by day through these most powerful scripture readings in the Bible. Almost all day Tuesday had to be in Oklahoma City. Almost all day Friday had to be in Oklahoma City. Almost all day Saturday had to be in Oklahoma City for meetings. Tuesday was the meeting of the Board of Pensions and Health Benefits. That's a very important board. Uh, I chair one of the two major committees. One is pensions, one is health benefits. Uh, With pensions, we're always looking to see how well our funds are doing at the Board of Pensions at Evanston, uh, Illinois. Uh, With the market having been so terrible for months now, how well are our pension funds doing? How well will our retired preachers, spouses, widows, and widowers of preachers, how will they do in such a market? I know the Health Benefits Committee was meeting and trying to find out how are we going to continue to deal with the rising medical costs. We want to be sure that every clergy person, spouse, families of, of clergy, retired clergy will all be cared for. Their medical needs can be met. These are important matters. After our committee met an hour, the other committee met the same hour, then the whole board came together. And Dr. Bob Long, who pastors our church, St. Luke's in Oklahoma City, said, before we pray, 
I want to say to one of our brothers, and he was sitting right across the table from Bob, that we've not met since your son was killed in that car wreck. You've been on our hearts at our prayers. We're going to pray for you again now. And we had a prayer, and then this father began to talk. He said, I know I'm not the only one sitting around this table who's had to bury a child. I could count five. Five of us who've had to bury a child. And he talked about the last time he was with his son. They went fishing. He said they both loved to fish. And he said it was such a, such a good time. We really had a good time. And just before we parted that afternoon, he said, Dad, I really believe in what you've done all these years. I, I don't know a better man or one who can tell God's story any better than you. I want you to do my funeral. He said, I sort of chuckled, said, funeral? You're 37, I'm 60. But within days, there was a horrible auto accident, and the son was killed. And as his voice broke and he told us a little bit of that story, then all of our hearts went back to last visits, last conversations, funerals, trips to cemeteries. So things that seemed so important the hour before were not quite so important anymore. We were now dealing with the really big things that affect us all. And this Sunday and all of this week and next Sunday, we'll be dealing with those things that sooner or later affect us all, that remind us what really, really matters. Number two, I underline these words. I trust in you, O God. Save me with your chesed, it says here. You know this word if you've been coming to Boston Avenue very long because I I mentioned to you that it's used more than any other word in the 39 scrolls of the Hebrew Scriptures to describe the very nature, being of God. It's usually translated in English as never-failing love, steadfast love, constant love. Save me in your constant, never-failing love. Maggie Dawn is a theology fellow at Cambridge University in England. She's recently written about growing up in the church. She was baptized, as little McGuire was a few minutes ago, with her precious child. The mom and dad brought her by the library. I always like to see these babies just a second before the service begins. She had a little scratch on one of her fingers. And so I was, I've got grandchildren, as you know, and so I said, you have a little bobo on your finger here. And so I reached out and patted it very gently, and so then she patted my hand and, and so on. And so I like little McGuire right off. What a sweet, precious baby. What a sweet and precious child. Maggie said she was baptized into the church as a baby. She got a third grader Bible. She was confirmed. And only in, as an adult did she feel the call of God to be a minister. And she went to Cambridge to the School of Theology. And she said, suddenly everything that I had believed was called into question. I mean, these are the, this is the job these professors have to say, well, what makes you think so? Well, who told you that? Where did you read that? And she said she was really discouraged late one afternoon. And she went to her advisor's office, an older professor. And she said, whose faith can stand up to all of this intellectual scrutiny that you're putting us through. 
And he said, I'm an old man now. When I was your age, I believed in many things. The older I've gotten, the more I've pared down my list. My list is shorter and briefer, but what I believe, I believe more fiercely than I have at any time in my life. And she asked, would you share that list with me? And he said, yeah. If you give me one thing, I would say, God is. If you give me two, I would say, God is love. And if you give me three, I would say, and I know because Jesus is his son. Save me with your chesed. My trust is in you. Number three, you have redeemed me. You didn't hear those words when I was reading with you because the lection today says begin with verse 9, so that's what I did in reading with you, but I read the whole psalm this week several times. And if you read the first few verses of the psalm, then you pick up another couple of wonderful ideas. And here you have, O Lord, this is the name of the one at the burning bush, Eye Asher the I am who I am. Oh, I am who I am. You have redeemed me. Now, those of you who worship with us regularly or have been in any Bible studies I've ever taught know how special this word for redeem is. It comes from the slave market. You have to remember that in biblical times, every conquering army, whether they were 30 strong or 30,000 strong, if they conquered somebody, they made slaves of them. Every able-bodied person was made a slave. And so after you had been rousted out of your own home, perhaps taken hundreds of miles from where you've always lived, you were marched up onto a slave block, and bidders there bid for you. But if someone bid the highest price, walked up and released you, you had been redeemed. Bought, paid for, and set free. Michael English was not a name I knew. I was reading in the Wall Street Journal recently an autobiography review of Michael English. I just like reviews, see if this is a book that I might want to read someday. When I saw Michael English, it didn't, didn't ring a bell for me at all. He was a singer, a gospel singer. North Carolina gospel singer. Uh, the kind of music he sang, the kind of CDs he sold, not my kind of music. So I didn't know Michael English. He began singing professionally when he was nine years old. He was in a singing group with his father and his older brother, and they were very successful. Now, they were in great demand singing all over North Carolina, then including South Carolina, finally to Georgia and Florida. Things were going well for Michael. At age 20, he married a young woman, beautiful. But he was on the road all the time, and he was 26 years old. He decided to go solo, so he left the group with his father and brother, went out on his own. He was gone nearly all the time, and one night after a concert of another young singer, a young woman singer, there was an adulterous relationship. His wife left him. Guess what? People who buy that kind of music, who go to those kind of concerts, don't go lightly with adultery, so they quit buying his CDs. And soon he was in demand nowhere, and he began that spiral down. He made some more bad decisions. 
The young woman with whom he had had the affair went away. She didn't want any part of him long term. He had nobody. He had walked out on his family. His wife had left him, and rightly so. He had nobody, so he started drinking. And then he got into drugs. And when he couldn't afford the drugs, he started auctioning off all of his clothes on eBay. All these suits and outfits he had had in his hand. Auction them all away to buy more drugs. And he moved from marijuana to cocaine, crack cocaine, all the way to heroin. Kept trying to get back, back to God. Couldn't seem to make connection. And late one afternoon, he woke up on an old couch. It smelled. He smelled. He hadn't had a bath in days. Hadn't shaved in ages. And he heard a voice in his heart, he said, not his ear, with his ears, in his heart. He heard a voice saying, Michael, try one more time. Try one more time. And he said he just rolled off the couch almost, flopped into the floor, and then pulled himself to his knees and started praying. And he said in his heart, he heard God say, I'm glad you've come home to me. And Michael heard himself saying, but I'm worthless. I'm absolutely worthless. And God said, but not to me. Not to me. Not worthless to me. And Michael was reborn because he'd been redeemed. Bought back. Redeemed. Bought back. It's a wonderful, powerful word. Your story, my story, not that dramatic. Not that dramatic. But you and I have also experienced grace. We've also been redeemed from the powers of sin and set free to be God's people in the world. Number four, let's get to that quotation. Jesus added a word. If in fact he was thinking these words of Psalm 31, even as he lay hanging on that cross, he added a word. Abba. Abba, my Father. Paul Scott leaded us, led us in praying the Lord's Prayer. And it begins, Our Father who art in heaven. The psalmist didn't call God by this intimate, intimate term of affection and endearment. Abba, my Father. Jesus added it. Abba, my Father. Into your hands I commit my ruach. Genesis 1 says, When God had created humankind, male and female created he them. He ruach, he breathed into them. And they became living beings. Jesus said, Abba, into your hands I commit my Ruach. I hand it over to you. Dr. Martin Marty, professor, University of Chicago, for many years, uh, taught in the sociology and religion departments. Good Lutheran, ordained Lutheran pastor. He didn't grow up in Chicago, he grew up in West Point, Nebraska. Uh, you'd have to look with a pretty good magnifying glass to find West Point, Nebraska on a map. Dr. Martin says, uh, Martin says when he was a boy growing up, they had about 2,200 people. His memory was they had about 2,200 people in West Point, Nebraska. But when he moved away to go to college and on to graduate school and to spend all these many years in Chicago, he's in his mid to late 80s now, um, he's always maintained a subscription to the weekly newspaper from West Point, Nebraska. Said I still know the names of these years. So he's saying that just just a, a couple of weeks ago, 
his newspaper came from West Point, Nebraska, and there was that column, you know, what happened five years ago in West Point, 10 years ago, 25 years ago, 50 years ago, 75 years ago, when Dr. Martin Marty was a boy. 1933, 75 years ago in West Point, the county commissioners voted to have all the phones taken out of the courthouse because they couldn't afford them. All the phones combined cost $18 a month. They didn't have $18 a month. The Great Depression had come to West Point. They couldn't afford the phones. They had to be taken out of the courthouse. He said it was an unusually severe winter. Their volunteer firemen were having trouble getting to fires, so they all started sleeping at City Hall so they'd be as close to the downtown, what little bit downtown there was, in West Point, Nebraska, to help out the people. Seventy-five years ago, there were twin girls having a twelfth birthday, and then there was a little sentence. There was an upset election in Germany last week, an unexpected victory by a fellow named Adolf Hitler. And Martin Marty said, it changed my hometown. That sentence would change my hometown. By 1942, he said, we had our first casualty, a young man killed in a plane crash in the South Pacific. And then word came, a young man killed in New Guinea. Another killed the Normandy invasion. Another killed in North Africa. Another killed fighting up the boot of Italy near Anzio Beach. Another killed in the Battle of the Bulge. One young man from West Point, Nebraska, was the commander of the company, given the responsibility of taking that last bridge on the Rhine River at Rimagen. Withering, withering machine gun fire. And Carl Timmerman, from this tiny little, little place in Nebraska, led that company across that bridge, secured that bridge, and within hours, more than 25,000 American troops went across that bridge and brought a quicker end to World War II. And so then Dr. Martin Marty, in this most recent column, said, I remember Dr. Santayana, who taught many years at Harvard, saying, every person needs a locus standi, in Latin, locus standi, a place where you stand that gives you orientation to everything else. And Dr. Santayana said that he would forever be grounded, rooted in that little village in Spain where he grew up and then in Harvard University where he spent the rest of his life. And Dr. Martin Marty said, I have one foot in the city of Chicago and one at West Point, Nebraska. What is your locus standi? Let me suggest one. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand, the shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land, a home within the wilderness, a rest upon the way, from the burning of the noontide heat and the burden of the day. Upon that cross of Jesus, mine eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me, and from my stricken heart with tears, two wonders I confess, the wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. I take, O cross, thy shadow for my abiding place. I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face. Content to let the world go by, to know no gain or loss, my sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. <laughs>